Dennis Hickey is a former missionary and church planter in France, now serves as a hospital chaplain for the Seton Hospital System. Um, but he's not here today as a church planter or as a chaplain. He's here as my friend and a man that God has used over the past few years to encourage me and to uh, give me a sense of purpose and destiny beyond which I thought was possible. And I mean that. And uh, so I want you to get to know Dennis as I've got to know him. And I think you'll see how much he loves the Lord. It'll come through and uh, confident that as he preaches, uh, you're going to hear something from God today. It is so great to be here. It is a privilege to be among you. I've been working at Edgar B. Davis. I think I'm on my fifth year. And they hired me over there. They said, you need to understand this is a unique place. I've traveled all over the world. I've been over 30 countries, lived overseas for 21 years. And I remember at the time thinking, Luling, Texas, 3,500 people, are you serious? <laughs> and um, God is in this place. God is in this town. I meet patients, they have relationships that go back generations, the stories I could tell. I've met some of you, and it's always a joy when I ask my patients, do you come from a faith background? That's a good neutral question. They'll say, well, I'm Baptist. Well, where are you from? I'm from Luling. Well, where do you go to church? Central Baptist, I think, yes. And I tell them, I know your pastor. I have nothing but respect for Brad and for the work of this church. It's good to meet Aaron for the first time. So I'm gonna answer two questions today. Number one, what is God's mission for your life? What should define your identity? What should drive your actions? What should fill your thoughts and what should satisfy your desires regardless of your race, your age, your station in life, your position in life, your circumstances in life, that never changes God's mission for your life. Number one, what is, what is that? And number two, once you know what it is, what hope do you have that you will faithfully pursue it like you know you should? We all know what we should do, but we don't do it. So we're gonna answer those this morning. If you have your Bibles, Turn to the book of Ephesians and review. I just want to remind you, this is one of four letters that Paul wrote, I think, during his first imprisonment. I think it was in Rome. Some people thought it was in Ephesus. It doesn't change anything. But Paul is in prison about 10 years after he planted this church. He's writing three churches and one individual, a church in Ephesus, a church in Philippi, a church in Colossae, and he's writing Philemon. The theme of Ephesians is the riches in Christ for those who are in Christ. It's called the queen of the epistles. For 40 years, I've asked Christians when I meet them, do you have five favorite books of the Bible? Somebody asked me that 40 years ago. It's a great question. I had a patient tell me once Leviticus. I said, what? <laughs> he said, Leviticus. I said, what? He said, every time I read those commands, I can say, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that because of the gospel, I thought. God's word, he uses every page of it in people's lives. But Ephes the book of Ephesians is the queen of the epistles. It's a marvelous book. 
We're going to look at Paul's second prayer for the Ephesians. If you turn to chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, I'd like to read our passage this morning, and then I'd like to pray for myself and pray for you. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for your spirit. I ask that you would... Use me to accomplish your purpose. Use your word to speak to your people. May they hear your voice. May they come away saying, God spoke to me. Whatever that might be, we have no idea, Father, but we pray for that. I pray that you would be glorified. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you noticed, our passage has three parts. Number one is the first. Why is Paul praying? He says in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. But he also says it in chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, am praying. So Paul begins with why he is praying for the Ephesians. And we're going to look at that. The second part are verses 16 to 19. There are four requests that Paul ask for his audience. Four specific requests. And then the third part is what does Paul hope to accomplish when God answers those four requests? Some people call it the doxology of the prayer. Some people call it the doxology of the first half in typical Pauline fashion. He instructs, he teaches, and then he exhorts and applies. So that's how this prayer is laid out. But this is Paul's second prayer. If you turn to chapter 1, verse 15, Paul's first prayer is recorded. And again, there's the phrase, for this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. But there, Paul is praying for enlightenment and understanding this beautiful verse in 18 of chapter 1, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In the first prayer, Paul is praying that they would be enlightened. They'd have understanding. This prayer, Paul is praying for enlightenment, but he's primarily praying that they would be equipped and they would experience God. And I think you'll see that as we move through it. Both prayers are Trinitarian in their format. But I want to begin with why Paul was motivated to pray. What was driving him? Remember chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I bend my knees before the Father. So Paul is looking back to chapter 2. 
And in chapter 2, Paul begins with who they were without Christ. He says in verse 1, they were dead to sin. And then he says in verse 12, remember you were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God. Can you think of a more tragic description of anyone? And that's who we were before we found Christ. That's one of the reasons Paul's praying, because that's what they were. But then he turns to what they are in Christ, and he has this wonderful cascade of truths. He says, verse 13, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, you have been made one, the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 15, they've been set free from the law of God. Verse 16, they've been reconciled to God. Remember, reconciliation means to restore to a right relationship. They were enemies of God, but now they're children of God. Verse 18, you've been given access to the Father. And 19, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All of those blessings took place because of the blood of Christ. He says in verse 7 of chapter 1, they, in him we have redemption. Remember, redemption is to be set free from slavery or imprisonment by the payment of a price. The price that Christ paid to accomplish all of this was his blood on the cross. And redemption accomplishes two things in relationship to sin. It sets us free from the penalty of the law. Paul calls it in Galatians 3.13, the curse of the law. Often patients I'll say, I'll say, do you, what do you believe about God? And they'll say, well, I'm a sinner. I, I do bad things. And I say, you know, the good news is God knows you are much worse than you think you are. <laughs> Galatians 3.13 Whoever, it's called the curse of the law. It says whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. But Christ redeemed us from that curse. And number two, he set us free from the power of sin. So in redemption, we're set free from the penalty of sin. We're set free from the power of sin. Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God. So that's why Paul's praying, because of what they were without Christ, because of what they are with Christ. And then he goes on in chapter 3. He's praying because of his calling as an apostle. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. Assuming you heard of the stewardship of the mystery of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul uses that term mystery seven times in Ephesians. He uses it 17 times in six of his letters. When Paul says a mystery, it's not a secret that's never been revealed. It's a secret that has now been revealed. <laughs> the Jews and the Gentiles are now one. And Paul had that calling to proclaim that message. So that is why he's praying for his audience. Because of what they were without Christ, because of what they are in Christ, and because of his calling as Christ, as an apostle of Christ. Have you ever wondered why you pray for people? Have you ever asked, that self, asked yourself that question? 
Sometimes our motives are good. Sometimes we're angry at someone. We're praying that God, God would convict them of sin. But I can't tell you how many times as a chaplain, I get called to the end of a patient's life. When the patient is dying, they call the chaplain and we go in. And I cannot tell you how many times I've gone in a room, there is a little woman laying in the bed. The room is dark. She's gonna die within hours. She, those that are awake, I'll say, how are you doing? And they'll say, I'm praying. And I asked that woman, who are you praying for? And who do they say? I'm praying for my children. There they are, the last moments on earth, and their love is reaching out to their children even more. And Paul was motivated by his love for these people. Now, what is he praying for them? What does he want them to accomplish? We're going to begin at the end. Go back to verses 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Paul is praying so that they would glorify God. I became a Christian 47 years ago this spring, and I heard the word glory of God, and I've talked about the glory of God, I've thought about the glory of God, I've asked Christ that I might glorify him, but have you ever sat and asked yourself, just what does it mean to glorify God? The word means to honor, to render, to esteem, but how do we do that as finite creatures? How do we bring glory to the eternal, majestic God? They asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he quoted Deuteronomy 6.4. It's recorded in the, all of the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew 22, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We glorify God when we love him above anything in our lives. And if we don't love him above anything in our lives, we will not glorify him. God alone is worthy of such love, but he's also worthy of worship. There are over 250 verses in the Bible that speak of praising God, 180 verses that speak of worshiping God. Think of the Ten Commandments. The first three are how to worship God. We glorify God when we love and worship him above anything. And if you don't love and worship him above anything, you're not glorifying God. But it's more than that. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So we're we glorify God by loving and worshiping him above everything and obeying him in everything. But more than just coming to church, serving in the children's ministry, praying, it's in all of life. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
1 Corinthians 6.20, glorify God in your body. I'm reading the Bible regularly, annually now, chronologically. Today's 143 in my annual reading program. I've got it on my Google Calendar. I've taken me two years to figure out how to do that. But so what happens is I end up in uh, Leviticus numbers in Deuteronomy. It's just this mountain of commands of how Israel was to worship God, how they were to honor God. Just one example. The garments for the priest who serves in the temple. You can look in Deuteronomy 28, the whole chapter of how to make those garments. Twice in chapter 28, verses 2 and 40, he says, make them for glory and for beauty. Don't just make them, but make them for glory and for beauty. Four times he says, use fine twined linen. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 8, verse 15. You get to Leviticus and you have all these sacrifices for God. The guilt offering, a ram, but without blemish. The grain offering, fine flour. The peace offering can be any animal from the flock, but without blemish. We glorify God when we love and worship him above anything and when we obey and honor him in everything. We do it for his glory. My wife and I were landscape architects before I, we went into ministry and I worked at an architectural firm in Tennessee. Our specialty was theme parks. And we, we had these big drawings. We were trying to remember how big they were. I think they were 36 by 24. I did not work for David Fortner and Bullock Smith and Associates. I worshiped. I worked for God. And when I did my drawing and I took that over to my boss's desk and laid it on there and said, Dave, here you go, I almost felt like crying. It was a lamb. I was laying my sacrifice, my gift to the Lord on my boss's desk. Father, this is for your glory. It's not for mine. Every aspect of your life can be an act of worship and adoration to God your Father. You use your gifts, your abilities, your knowledge, your talents, your passions, your experience. Whatever you do, you can do it for the glory of God. So that's how we glorify God. We love and worship him above anything and we obey and honor him in everything. So the second question is, how do you maintain that attitude day in and day out? And that's the purpose of Paul's prayer, his four requests. That's what we're going to look at now. Verse 16, Paul says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Paul is not praying that they receive the Spirit. He already told them in verse 13 of chapter 1, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Paul is praying that they would be strengthened by the Spirit in their inner being. If you have the King James, it's inner man. If you have the New American Standard, it's inner self. I think, I don't even know what your church's position on the nature of man, but I think man has two parts. Physical part, 
and the spiritual part. Sometimes it's called our soul, sometimes it's called our spirit, sometimes it's called our inner man, our heart. I have been with so many patients who have passed and all that's left is the physical. Something left the room. How does the Spirit strengthen us? Number one, remember Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse, John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, I will, Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring remembrance to all that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit informs us about Christ. Number one, if you know about Christ, the Holy Spirit informed you. Number two, the Holy Spirit gives us understanding of what we know. Remember his first prayer in chapter 1, verse 18, that you might be enlightened. It's like we can study the Bible, and then we have these moments where, oh, that's what that means. Oh, that's what Paul was trying to say. That's how that applies to my life. So the Spirit strengthens us by giving us knowledge of Christ. The Spirit gives us understanding of Christ. Number three, the Spirit gives us a personal relationship with Christ. Remember John 16, 7, Jesus said, It is your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. I have seen perhaps close to 5,000 patients in the last five years. I knock on the door. I ask if I can come in and I introduce myself and I can't tell you how many times I take one step in that room and I can sense the Holy Spirit in that patient's heart. It is just so evident. Sometimes not as much, but the Spirit gives us that relationship with Jesus Christ. And number four, the Spirit transforms us into the likeness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is praying that they would be strengthened by the Spirit, that they would grow in their knowledge of Christ, their understanding of Christ, their relationship with Christ, and their conformity to Christ so that they would love and worship him above every, anything, and they will obey and honor him in everything. His second request, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I love that word dwell. It means to settle. It means to settle and have an impact, an enduring presence. Think of the difference in your day. Maybe you're like me. I don't know what your routine is. I eat the same thing in the same way at the same time every day, about 340 days a year. I'm, I am just pathetic. But I have this routine, and I have my prayer, and I get in the car. I live in Austin, and I drive down to Edgar B. Davis, and I have a lot of time to pray on 183. And I walk in the hospital, I'm filled with the Lord, the Lord's in my heart, I'm excited, I'm going to follow Christ. And I'll walk out at three o'clock and thought, what? Where's Jesus been all day? I get distracted. I forget. And I'm like, oh. And I got 183 to drive back to think about my failure all the way back to Austin. <laughs> Christ settling in your heart. 
He's with you all day. He's in your conversations. He's in your thoughts. He's in your reactions. He's in your desires. He's in your choices. We have those days. I wish every day was like that. But that's what Paul's praying for, that Christ would dwell in your heart. He'd settle in your heart and have an enduring influence. The third request, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To understand means to perceive. Luke uses it in Acts 10.34 when he's talking about Peter, and Peter hears Cornelius' testimony, and Peter says, I understand that God shows no partiality. That word is the aha moment where you grasp something for the, a special understanding, and it's with you the rest of your life. Oh, that is what God meant. And it's with you. It changes your life. We've all had that. We'll be reading the scriptures and then we'll realize, oh, that is, and that's how it means to me. That is what Paul is praying. But then he says to know Christ, that is a knowledge based on experience. But here's the thing. Why would Paul say you may have strength to comprehend the love of Christ? Strength to persevere, strength to endure, strength to resist temptation, but why strength to understand the love of Christ? I think it's because we understand the love of Christ, not in blessings, not in prosperity, but in trials and temptations and horrific circumstances. God's spirit, even in our darkest moment, he enters in and we say, God loves me. We have good friends, business executive, traveled the world, ministry leader all over the world where he went. Their fourth, their fourth child, their youngest daughter died on the way going back to uh, University of Virginia Saturday afternoon, 1.30 in the afternoon. Her car runs off the road and dies. Fourth child, Rebecca. That Monday, they sent an email to all their friends 10 things for which we are grateful in our daughter's death. Number one, Rebecca knew the Lord and had eternal life. Number two, she grew up in a Christian family and knew she was loved and was surrounded by love. Number three, she had Christian friends who loved her and cared for her. Number four, no one else was killed at that accident except Rebecca. Number five, God provided a Christian man to hold our daughter and pray for her while she died. Take off our shoes. God's spirit gave them understanding that even in that ultimate worst tragedy a parent can face, his love was still there. That's what Paul's praying for. That they might know the vastness of God's love, that it is eternal and unchanging. And finally, I agree with the commentators who say the fourth request is like 
the culmination of the other three. It's like Paul's building and he says that you may be filled with the fullness of God. I love the quote, the perfection of man is his being full of God. To be full means to be in its grip, to be controlled by it. Acts 13, Luke writes that the Jews were filled with jealousy and were be, uh, reviling Paul. It means being overwhelmingly and regularly controlled by God's presence, his power, and his control. He's controlling your thoughts, your desires, your emotions, your reactions. As one writer said, to be filled with God is to be conscious of and yielded to God's presence, strength, love, authority, and holiness. Those moments where we're, we just sense God is there. He's in our words. He's in what happened. He's in our response. He gives us wisdom. He gives us patience. He gives us courage. Whatever it is, we sense God is with us. J.I. Packer, 50 years ago, wrote a Christian classic called Knowing God. He gave four attributes of those who know God. Number one, those who know God have great energy for God. That's because they've experienced the fullness of God. Those who know God have great thoughts for God, but that's because they've been filled with his presence and enlightened by his spirit. Those who know God show great boldness for God because they've seen the power of God in their own life, in the lives of their friends. And he says, those who know God have great contentment in God because they grasp the breadth, the length, the height, and depth of the love of Christ. God's glory defines their identity. It drives their actions. It fills their thoughts. And it satisfies their desires. Your chief end, my chief end, is that we would love and worship God above everything. And we would obey and desire to honor him in everything in our lives. His glory would define our identity. His glory would drive our actions. It would fill our thoughts. It would satisfy our desires. Here's my suggestion for you. Every day, Pray this prayer for yourself. Pray, Father, strengthen me by your spirit in your inner being, that the spirit would increase my knowledge of Christ, my understanding of Christ. He'd deepen my relationship with Christ, and he would increasingly transform me into the likeness of Christ. Number two, Father, may Christ settle in my heart and dwell today, that I would abide in Christ today. I would believe in Christ. I would call upon Christ. I would delight in Christ. I'd encounter Christ. I'd fellowship with Christ. I'd glorify Christ. I'd honor Christ. I'd hear Christ. I'd be joyful in Christ. I'd long for Christ. I'd be near Christ. I'd obey Christ. I'd rest in Christ. I'd seek Christ, and I'd trust Christ. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. May the love of Christ be my foundation, my immovable confidence. 
And finally, every conversation, every decision, every action, every motion would be experienced in the fullness of God my Father so that, Father, you would be glorified by my life and your life here in Luling, Texas, for the glory of God. Let's pray.